0: podcast, co-hosted by the Governance Programme at the Agahan University and
1: the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies, in cooperation with the University of Perth.
0: Welcome to Shara'i, the podcast. My name is Gianluca Parolin.
1: And my name is Serena Tolino. And we are here today. With Delfina Serrano, tenured researcher at the Spanish Higher Council for Scientific Research in Madrid. Welcome, Delfina.
2: Thank you.
0: Delfina, you are a member of the board of ISILs. Uh, when did your association with ISILs begin?
2: Well, uh, I attended the second conference, which uh, at, um, at that time was called the Joseph Schacht Conference. Maribel Fierro organized the Joseph Sacht conference in Granada, and she invited me or suggested me to present a proposal, so this was my first Joseph Sacht ICILS conference, and then, well, I missed the coming ones, but I think since the second conference held at Harvard in, I don't remember the, the year, sorry, uh, I attended and participated presented papers at all the subsequent uh, conferences and uh, hopefully I will also attend the Londres one
0: <laughs> we expect you <laughs> we will have the opportunity to look into one of your latest fascinating uh, article later in the episode but what do you do when you don't do research? Do you have a hobby? Yes,
2: well, I I, well, I like reading, uh, I like traveling uh, a lot. I like going to restaurants, the cinema, to the theater. But I think the activity that I uh, enjoy at most is uh, hiking. And uh, hiking because of the advantages for the body, but also for spirit. And... Uh, While I hike, I get ideas. Sometimes um, we are blocked, uh, we don't know how to continue with a paper or what to do with this uh, and that. And hiking is, I mean, the best thing, and I recommend it to everybody, the best thing to unblock and to to see how to proceed further, of course, regarding academic and scholarly issues, but also uh, at a personal level. And it's also very healthy it's good for storing vitamin d etc so uh,
0: <laughs> something i
2: try to do in the city in madrid madrid is a very big city and the advantage of such big cities is that you every time you go out you discover something you have not seen before or a place where you had never been before or a new museum restaurant whatever so it's uh, because i don't live uh, in the center so every time I go to downtown Madrid to walk, I enjoy it. It's, uh, yeah, stimulating because there is always something new coming up. Do you
1: have a favorite place where you like to go hiking?
2: Uh, well, I like uh, beaches. Well, I just, on the beach, I don't hike. I just walk. I like the mountains, of course. And in general, whatever land, the nice landscapes are at my disposal. But I also like parks cities. I have uh, some very nice parks close from my place uh, where you can experience semi-wild nature. So yes, I'm very open. I mean, I'm not very demanding. And uh, I have hiked in, in wonderful places.
0: Looking at the gray zone between work and uh, hobbies, you have attended a number of ISIS conferences. Is there anything specific about the ISIS conferences that you particularly like? Any specific aspects?
2: I should say listening to others' papers and, to, uh, and getting to know about others' research. But to be sincere, and I think many other people share this preference of mine, what I like is the social part, the opportunity to meet, I mean, I have made very nice relations with colleagues after attending ICILS conferences. And this is something, I mean, I I attach a lot of importance to ICILS and to attending every ICILS conference. No, I think it's the most important conference for me. And for this reason, I have tried to be quite constant. And I have always strived to present a proposal and to adapt to the different focus of every conference. So it's the social part. As I said, my first ISIS conference was that uh, held uh, in Granada, wonderfully organized by Maribel Fierro. And well, I remember, I will not say his name, but I remember having breakfast with a very renowned specialist uh, in Islamic law. We didn't talk about Islamic law, we just talked about personal things, about our families, about our hobbies. Etc. And this is one of my nicest memories: the opportunity to to get to know and to have at your reach uh, these great figures of uh, Islamic legal studies, and also the, the the younger colleagues. Well, at that time I, I was very young. And now I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not that young. But yes, meeting colleagues uh, I've met. Uh, during the last uh, conferences, and yes, and sharing because I think this personal contact also encourages uh, research and real interesting academic exchange and ideas about future conferences, etc. Well, let's say the social part.
1: Is there some specific that you would like to see in the 10th isils conference that will take place in London?
2: Well. I must say I I was very satisfied with past conferences. Maybe something I've missed was the opportunity to have the papers published together. I know this is difficult uh, from a a logistic point of view and even more so when the conferences are not devoted to a specific topic as will be the case of the next um, London uh, conference, but... I remember, for example, after the second Harvard conference to which I attended, a group of participants organized uh, among ourselves and had our papers published together by HAWA, the the Brill Journal on on Gender. Uh, And, well, I would like, if not an opportunity provided by the the board or by the, the organizers, To have all the papers published together, at least more effort to have, which of course this is a task I charge on myself, to have little clusters of papers published together. Apart from that, I'm very much looking forward to this conference and uh, I have no other expectations.
0: We're gonna take your word on this, Delfina. In uh, recently, in 2018, you published a very interesting article in the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies titled Redefining Paternal Affiliation Through DNA Testing, in which you sort of transitioned from pre-modern to contemporary jurisprudence. And I was wondering if you could share with us a bit of a background of this journey for you as a researcher.
2: Well, I had tried to transition from the pre-modern to the contemporary period before. I did it uh, regarding gender issues, no? Islamic law and gender, Islamic law and violence, etc. And, it, and I, well, I thought, since I am a public servant, I feel, uh, as an Islamologist and as an Arabist, I feel that, and since Sharia has such a bad press, But everybody talks about Sharia and everybody thinks uh, that to know uh, something about Sharia, to have something to say about Sharia. I thought it was necessary first to show uh, that uh, the kind of research people like me do on this very apparently, not for me, of course, but this apparently boring texts, medieval texts and difficult texts, I, I felt I was obliged to show people the regular taxpayers, that this is interesting for them too. Of course, I believe in the intrinsic interest of primary research. I mean, this shouldn't be justified. We shouldn't justify the need to study the kind of, uh, the, the writings produced by Andalusi Muslims, for example. But, well, I think a modicum of emotional intelligence Advice is to try to communicate or to try to reach the general public and show them the interest of this research for contemporary societies. And in the case of Sharia, I think, well, for all of us, this interest is obvious. But for the people, it's not uh, that's not the case. And, and I have to do that with colleagues, with other Arabists uh, with whom I... Uh, interact uh, from Spain, with whom I interact very regularly, with colleagues from other disciplines, with whom I also have very uh, close contact. And that was the reason why I decided to pay attention, for example, to the punishment of fornication, to stoning, or to the issue of children born outside of marriage and unmarried mothers in uh, Islamic society. Also, I am Spanish. I grew up in a Catholic family. I was raised and and socialized in the Catholic religion and culture. And, well, this approach to extramarital sexual relations uh, and to the motherhood outside of marriage, etc., the taboo. Uh, that exists about these issues is not strange for me at all. I grew up, I mean, I was a teenager when Franco died, and I still remember that time, and I haven't forgotten. So there is also a personal interest in uh, researching these kind of questions that affect women's role in in societies, the monotheistic religion's approach to Women and to women's sexuality, etc.
0: What caught your attention in uh, DNA testing? Then, why do you think it's a good case study?
2: Well, this article is, uh, results from my participation in a research project led by Ayman Shabana from Georgetown University on uh, how new medical technologies and um, biological technologies are changing or are affecting the conception of the nuclear family in Islamic societies. My interest in DNA tests comes from before that collaboration, which started in 2017, I think. Because I think the possibility to establish through DNA testing the biological relationships between people undermines the argument explaining why Fornication has to be punished that harshly, according to classical Fig.
1: In the article you also showed the relevance of high malgiosia minority opinion on establishing filiation for children born out of wedlock. So as a scholar, you're a scholar who worked a lot on Manic law and worked a lot on um, Elandalus. So um, I wanted to ask you, how do you assess the relevance of minority? Um, and also peripheral opinions on our understanding of Islamic law.
2: Well, in this respect, I draw from my experience with pre-modern Islamic law. I had the opportunity to to see or to to realize that the fact that, as we all know, classical Islamic jurisprudence is characterized by the, the admission of internal divergence of opinions. Majority opinions had more authority, more prestige and yes, sometimes judicial practice followed the majority opinions, but in many in other cases judicial practice drew or, or followed minority opinions. It all depended on the judge, on the Qadi. The Qadi was entitled for all the, at least before the 15th century, Rulers never managed to impose judging according to one among divergent legal opinions upon the the caddies of of their realm. Caddies always had the the capacity to, to draw on a different opinion provided he was able to substantiate his decision. And, uh, and I can, can't say that because I paid uh, attention to the issue of amal or judicial practice. Aamal is a, a locally and temporally, temporally limited form of consensus uh, applying to judicial practice. I mean, the caddies of a certain place agree to issue judgment according to one among many uh, divergent or among um, several divergent opinions. But they were not obliged uh, to issue judgment according to the amal or according to the opinion followed by a majority of caddies or by a majority of of jurists. And I think nowadays uh, the case is is very similar. There are opinions that have authority because they have been issued by international fiqh organizations or by very prestigious uh, jurists but if you examine practice and the way to check whether these opinions, the relevance of these opinions is to look at judicial practice, which is not easy all the time because uh, doing uh, researching judicial practice in the contemporary Maghreb, for example, is not, is not easy, at least not from Spain. And because access to the archives is not either the archives are not... I mean, access is not simple. You have to go to the country and to this is no guarantee that you can have access to these materials the material is maybe not organized Um, I mean, it's it's not easy, but when you have the opportunity to find, to trace a certain issue, for example, court decisions about paternity claims by unmarried mothers, you see that practice is not I mean, maybe most of the caddies or of the Judges issue judgment according to the established majority opinion. But there are others who don't, and these ones are the ones who who take the lead for change. And also there is a symbiotic relationship between social movements and and demands, even by non-influential groups of people, and and the law. Because no law can survive uh, without satisfying to a certain degree the needs of the subjects to this law. In the case of Ibn Qayyim, I found out that in Algeria, for example, the the Supreme Court used this minority opinion by Ibn al Kajim to justify their decision to award paternity rights to a a mother who claimed, who denounced the biological father of her child, her baby. The problem is that this decision, which took place, which... uh, I mean, it's real, but it has, like, disappeared. There is no interest in uh, giving publicity to the the fact that the Supreme in Algeria issued that decision, drawing on or arguing on the basis of Ibn al-Khajim's minority opinion. For this reason, I think also our role as researchers who can, Students of Islamic law who can read Arabic, and this is very important because we can access sources and information through internet, for example, that other people, that activists, for example, other specialists from other uh, fields cannot understand or, or take advantage of. I think it is important to give publicity to these minority innovative judgments by cadres, because one judgment can open change i'm talking about the future i'm trying to figure out how things will go in the in the future but my intuition my um, my instinct tells me how things are going to evolve in the future because the same or similar similar uh, developments have happened in this way in the past also i have also paid attention not only to judges Judgments against, for example, the the demands of unmarried mothers. But the very fact that mothers more and more go to the courts and claim their rights, even if they can anticipate a a, a negative result, is also very important. So these are the kind of things I used to pay attention to, apart from the code, uh, the judgment the majority opinion, etc. But I I do not hide a certain bias, maybe, a certain optimistic bias. If I pay attention to these kind of things, of issues, it's because I have hope and because I am optimistic. And because I am a woman.
0: You attach a lot of relevance to the open acknowledgement of a minority opinion like Ibn al Khayim's. And of course, you have already brought in the question of prestige. What do you make of that? What do you make of the open acknowledgement of a minority opinion? And do you see a difference from contemporary legal practice and pre-modern and the pre-modern one?
2: Just mentioning, or I mean, researching, I, I didn't, it was not me who, I mean, I am, I haven't worked on Ibn al-Kajim, I just read that Ibn al-Kajim had this this um, alternative or minority opinion on paternity establishment or affiliation out of wedlock. In my experience, both with the pre-modern sources and the uh, contemporary ones, is that certain minority opinions, when they did not interest the majority or uh, those with the upper hand in society or within Jurists uh, establishment, they, these opinions tended to be hidden or concealed, sometimes very subtly. I am just working or returning to one such cases concerning uh, Kadia Yad, one of the jurists uh, whom I have worked most. Uh, he lived in the 12th century. So he his doctor, he had a very innovative approach to rape, to the crime of rape, to denounces of rape. The way he uses the, the relevant terminology suggests that he was in favor of considering claims of rape as complaints rather than as claims. Why? Because a complaint is not subject to the hat for calumny if you cannot substantiate your claim. Because false or unfounded accusations of zina are subject to the punishment of calumny. So, through this, instead of referring to a woman's accusation of rape against a man as a claim with the verb da, ida, he uses the root shakaya in the fifth form, tashaka. He says hiya tashakat. But had I not read even Hazam's views about this question, which he issued one century earlier, I wouldn't have realized the importance of using the one verb or the other. There is clear evidence that this nuance Kadyayat wanted to introduce in Maliki doctrine on rape was concealed. Later, jurists were not ready to accept this nuance. And it's very interesting to see how later commentators try to create the impression that, no, that this uh, terminological selection or this, the difference between one verb or the other is not relevant. But it was. So these things happen. And this is why it is important to demonstrate how doctrines and opinions are manipulated within uh, a single tradition for whatever interests. No, In this case, to make the reputation of men prevail over uh, the need to address uh, the crime of rape to women's uh, satisfaction. So this is why I think it is important to insist that these opinions exist and it is important that activists who are not Islamologists, who are not Arabists, know because many activists have realized that in order to thwart the patriarchal view of the Sharia, it is necessary to argue with arguments drawn from the Sharia. So, well, here modestly, I think uh, we can contribute to, to this activism as well just by not letting that manipulations pass unnoticed of this kind.
1: Thank you a lot Delfina also for this reflection on our public uh, role as scholars of Islamic law. Um, I was wondering, where, um, where would you introduce your current research in a course outline or where would you recommend our colleagues who are listening to this episode to introduce your research in their courses?
2: Well, within the broader level or tag of Islamic law and society. or I could also feel very much at ease as someone who who does history of Arabic Islamic legal texts, because this is what I do mainly. I do history of legal Arabic Islamic legal texts with all the the import of, of the expression. I am very, very interested in terminology, not only in what jurists say, but also in how they say, how they express their opinions. This can be sometimes as important as what they say. We tend sometimes to translate certain expressions they use with very opaque terms that nobody else outside the discipline and even within understands. And, well, this is very nice because uh, it's it's very well. I mean, I have nothing uh, against but sometimes we are like overcorrecting or applying categories that have to do with power dynamics within a discipline. I mean, the, the ones who want to distinguish themselves from the journalists or uh, whatever. We introduce categories and, and um, nuances that are not in the source. I mean, I don't say that my translations or my interpretations of the kind of texts I, I, I read are correct or are the best. But I prefer first to preserve the literality of the terms. And then, yes, sometimes you have to find an expression or a way to translate this that is intelligible for specialists and for non-specialists. But there is a certain danger uh, there to distort. So, yes, I insert myself within these two broad uh, research lines uh, Islamic law society and history of Islamic legal texts
0: Thank you so much Delfina for having shared your thoughts and the reflections with us today at A. Thank you so much
2: You're welcome, it's been a pleasure
1: Thank you very much and we hope to see you in London
2: Okay, bye bye, see you